Hello, welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about Biden's first year. And I know it's almost a year and a month, um, but I wanted to do it while I had these two particular guests coming on. And so um, they've agreed to make their assessment. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about them and then we'll get right into it. Uh, Jamar Duran holds academic degrees in music, media, and law. He works professionally as a producer, technical director, show host, and writer. He's often asked to contribute to discussions on law, television, film, music, youth development, leadership, and social justice. William Cooper is an attorney and columnist who has written for the Wall Street Journal, Baltimore Sun, New York Daily News, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and USA Today, among others. And like I said, both of these gentlemen, uh, I, 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 I strongly believe uh, will have some unique takes uh, on this first year of the Biden administration. And I think that you're going to um, enjoy hearing them. So without further ado, um, let me welcome Mr. Darren and Mr. Cooper to a moment with Eric Fleming. All right. Welcome, gentlemen. Appreciate y'all coming on, Mr. Duran and Mr. Cooper. How y'all doing? Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Thank you, Eric. All right, guys. I'm going to ask you a personal question to get this thing started. Uh, I don't know if y'all taught classes or anything, but if you have, do you consider yourself a pretty tough teacher? Uh, I guess I'll go since I'm making noise. Uh, I've taught a lot. Uh, I've always thought that I was not a tough teacher, but in my last position in a high school, uh, I think they thought I was a little intellectually challenging. All right. What about you, Will? I have taught some. I'm uh, probably uh, not particularly tough. I'm more on, on the friendly side. Okay. All right. Well, gentlemen, I'll start with Will first. What, since y'all consider yourselves pretty lenient teachers, what letter grade would you give Joe Biden's first year in office? All right. Stop right. Stop right there. Just get the get the letter grade first, then we'll come back and get the discussion. Uh, Jamar. I'm going to go C. Solid C. Okay. All right. So, Jamar, since you're the tougher teacher, it looks like, we'll start with you. Explain why a C. Oh, so C by the traditional standard of meaning average, mediocre. Just a standard thing. So I know, like, in today's world, we give out A's and B's like candy, but I'm going more of the traditional old school C means you're the norm. You're right in the middle. So I don't think he did anything too flashy or uh, amazing, but I don't think it was a total blunder or mess up either. All right. So, Will, you gave him a B. That sounds a little more optimistic. Explain why. tend to be 
little more forgiving um, of how hard things can be than, than most critics. I think it's really difficult to be president. You inherit enormous, powerful trends that are, are hard to reverse and get a hold of. And I think in some really important ways, the country is doing, doing a lot better than it was two years ago. Um, and so I think the general description of somewhere in the middle of all presidents makes good sense to me. Uh, and that was what was behind my beat. All right. So neither one of you gave him an A. So, <laughs> so Will, I'm going to start with you. Why, why, um, what, what does he need to do or what does the administration need to do to be better? I'm a generally speaking politically moderate. Uh, Joe Biden philosophically is not that far from me. I mean, we would agree and disagree on a number of things, but my general place on the continuum is fairly close to where Biden is, generally speaking. Um, I do think that he has, is not as sharp as he once was. He's 78 years old. It's not meant to be a huge criticism or a great put down, but I think 58 year old Joe Biden had more mental muscles working uh, at a high level than 78 year old Joe Biden. So I think his intentions, his general philosophy is pretty strong and consistent with my views. I do think he's, he's lost a step. And when you're the most important person in the country, if not the world, from a political standpoint, you want to be firing on all cylinders. And so that's what causes me to give him a little bit of a, a deficit in the grade. All right, Jamar. So you said mediocre is explaining why the C, what can he do better? So, uh, oddly, I agree with a lot of what Will said, not about my personal politics, but about uh, everything from him being 78 years old and not being as strong as he once was uh, and that sort of thing. But my answer for how he could have gotten a better grade is probably going to be a little different than most people would think. Uh, I don't think it was policy or ideas or uh, his handling of, of anything and, and the various bills, et cetera. Uh, I think we're in a new age now, and it might relate to his age, too. Uh, for me, he was the least visible president in my life that I can think of. And I get that that's more exaggerating coming off of Trump, who was just in our faces all day, every day. But then even before that, you had Obama, who, again, is, is this is the millennial age. Everybody's online. We're on social media. We're cracking jokes. And Biden has almost been hidden. So if you like look at him on paper, it's like, well, by the numbers, this is a president. He's done the things. He's made the arguments. Uh, he could have done some things better or fought harder. There's some things he didn't address that he should have addressed. But overall, he just needs to speak to me or speak to us more to say, hey, this is what we're doing. Whether it's putting out a funny video or it's actually a press conference, uh, he's just been more hidden. And I think had he just if I had seen him pop up in my inbox or on Twitter or something once a week or once a month or a couple times a month with, hey, guys, this is what we've gotten done or this is where we are now and why this is getting stalled or whatever, that would have at least bumped him to a B, if not an A for me. So, Jamar, let me ask you, let me say this to you and then uh, give me your feedback on it. Well, I guess it is in the form of a question. Um, wasn't that the way he campaigned? Didn't he campaign kind of in a, I won't say stealthy way, but kind of like 
trying to stay out of his way and when you expect him if he campaigned that way to be presidential that uh i you're correct i totally agree uh, but i had the same criticism then and i i was not a biden fan i i I did vote for him, of course, uh, as opposed to Trump. I say, of course, but of course, with my background being uh, very left-leaning. Uh, but uh, I wasn't a fan of him in the debates. He campaigned. In some ways, it reminded me of Hillary Clinton the four years before in a I got this in a bag way. Just kind of what you said. Like, I just don't have to mess this up, kind of. And uh, I, I agree. He, he didn't change that philosophy. So I guess I shouldn't have expected anything differently, but uh, I probably would have preferred a different president. And uh, going forward, if, if he heard this podcast, I would uh, push him to just be more visible. Just give me a little bit more of what's going on. A lot of people said uh, when I was teaching last year, actually, like, what has Biden done? Uh, we haven't heard from him. We haven't seen him. He's in hiding. And actually, we just didn't know what he had done because he hadn't said it. <laughs> It wasn't that he wasn't working. He wasn't taking these month-long vacations like some other presidents. He just wasn't going out and saying, hey, guys, this is what I did. And uh, I just think going forward, I, I really would like to see that. And it might make me a, a, Biden, uh, a Biden defender or lover or appreciator or something. Well, as a press guy, do you agree with that assessment? I do. I think Jamar makes really good points, and I totally agree. I think one of the examples of how I do think his age is impacting his presidency is he's less visible. He, he's always had a little bit of uh, uh, an orientation towards making gaffes and speaking too freely than some of the more circumscribed politicians. And as he's, as he's gotten older and lost a step, you know, I think he, he and his advisors are more concerned about that than uh, even previously. So he, he's, um, He's not out there as much as he should be. I think it's a great point, and I, I totally agree. And it's not just public relations. People should hear from their president. It's important. It, it's important to communicate directly and consistently. You don't want to overdo it. You don't want to have it be part of some narcissistic personality like we saw the previous four years. But you want to be out there communicating. It's important. It, it impacts your effectiveness as a leader. It's something that the people in the country deserve to receive in exchange for their vote. Uh, so yeah, I, I very much agree with Jamar's comments. All right, so Will, let me ask you this question. Will the placement of a black woman on the Supreme Court help or hurt Biden down the road? Great question. I think it will help him. Uh, I am very uh, supportive of the approach he's taking because I think among other things, I think there's a very big group of extremely qualified people in that category uh, as lawyers and judges. So I fully expect the decision to be somebody selected enormously high caliber that the country learns to really appreciate and respect. Uh, and in two and a half years, when we're back at the election, uh, I think it'll reflect favorably for him, both with his base, but also with people who just recognize that he made a really good decision. Jamar, what's your take on that? I think that's a tough question. Uh, I think well, the question was, uh, will that help him uh, long term or would it? Well, would it question? hurt him? Would it help him or hurt okay. him? So, yeah, so that that's what makes it tough, because I think for uh, 
many, many people on the left, maybe a majority of the left, that will be a good thing. It's something that people want. I think people of color, I think women, uh, and, and also maybe it's base, but anybody left-leaning will go, yes. Uh, of course, I think the majority of the right will hate that move. And that's been an issue. And I, I thought it was maybe an issue for the history of our country. But no, I think by the numbers, we are more partisan or more polarized or whatever now than we were, you know, in the last, whatever, 10, 15 years. And uh, they're going to hate that move. And that has been the issue, at least starting with Obama, at least maybe Bush before him, that we can't seem to agree on anything and, and, and we're just fighting. Uh, and that's just going to be another thing to fight over. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying that. But whether it helps him or hurts him, uh, it might be gray area. It might be right down the middle. And it's just another one of those issues that we'll debate back and forth. And one side will mostly be going yes. And the other side will be mostly going no. And uh, it'll be something else that we'll fight about on Twitter. <laughs> so, Jamar, if I if I asked you to predict a vote on the nominee, once because the, the nominee is going to make it out of committee, the committee has the majority to push the nominee out. Based on your answer, are you saying that you think Kamala Harris is going to break the tie to get this black woman on this court? Oh, I didn't think about it in, in that way. Uh, uh, who, who, uh, I, my guess is would be that she would not need to break the tie. My guess is that she would get in without uh, the vice president stepping in. All right. What about you, Will? 50-50? Oh, go ahead. I agree. I could easily um, live to regret this prediction because it's certainly a variety of scenarios. But I am going to be an optimist, and I'm going to predict uh, multiple, maybe even a handful of Republican senators voting uh, to confirm. And, and in general, I'm going to predict uh, a confirmation process that's not as polarized and um, vicious as some of the confirmation hearings we've seen over the last several decades. Recent ones have gotten a lot of attention, but there have been it's been a very polarized area in the country for a long time, and I'm going to predict that actually going to be a little bit better this time. Uh, okay, it's we'll good. See. It's good. It's good to have optimism. I I I feel I I feel kind of saying well, I think there's going to be about ten. Republican senators uh, that's going to go along with it. I think that's kind of been the trend we've seen. So, um, yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. But it's, it's good to hear optimism from people. Um, let me let me um, let me let me ask this question. If things go the way they are now, uh, even with a confirmation, do you see the midterm elections being a typical historical referendum and that the party that's not in the White House will get control of the House and the Senate? I'll start with Will first. I, it does seem to be going that way. Um, and it, I do think we're likely to find um, I do think that's likely to happen. I don't know how resounding it will be. Um, you've, historically, sometimes the the move is sort of moderately against the incumbent, and sometimes there's big waves. And I could see it being either one of those or even something in between. It's really hard to predict. But from everything I'm seeing in terms of the polling, the typical trends, which are there for a reason, there's a 
you know, a sort of a, a part of our polity that likes to push back against what the president's been doing at the first midterm. It's a very consistent part of our history. So it does seem like that's going to happen again. That's my sense. Jamar, your take. I almost completely agree. Uh, it feels like it is uh, part of the normal. I want to say ebb and flow if that fits here, but that, that's how it works. That's how the cycle works. And uh, I, I know that the information I get comes through a particular lens and is, is a bit biased. But what what I, I do seem to see is uh, the same criticism, like Democrats are a mess uh, and they can't get it together. And, and um, maybe certain groups, maybe younger groups, maybe certain uh, classes, maybe certain minority groups. I don't know, but but we may show up for that presidential election and we may not show up at midterms, but for whatever reason, the ebb and flow or just the excitement behind a new candidate or getting Trump out or getting Obama in or whatever, uh, I, I do see that pushback happening. Yeah. So here's something I've picked up on and see if y'all agree with that and, and try to expound on it. So... President Biden came to Atlanta and he wanted to talk about the voting rights bills and a notable person that was absent was Stacey Abrams, who probably has been considered or is considered one of the leaders in the country dealing with protecting voting rights. And she's a candidate for governor this year in the state of Georgia. Um, and kind of the feedback I heard was, uh, well, he ha- he didn't deliver on the promise. So why should people like her and uh, Latasha uh, Brown and other folks, why should those kind of people be in a photo op with a president that didn't deliver on uh, voting rights? Do you, one, do you think that's a fair judgment on him? And two, do you think that's going to contribute to black turnout in November? Mm. Jamar, I'll start with you. Yes. All right. Uh, I understand the sentiment. Uh, I, I, I get where they're coming from. I understand her completely. Uh, and it makes a statement, but it also is part of that wedge, right? That I was mentioning earlier of uh, us not being able to get together and work together. So it's both things. Uh, personally, maybe I make the statement in a, a different way while also having the, the public or uh, the public picture, the viewing, the, the opportunities that I'm trying to say, uh, while also making a strong statement, even if it's in writing or at a press conference or whatever. Uh, but there's there's got to be both, I think, because we need each other. And I think that is the fracturing on the left, that we have like three different groups and uh, Stacey Abrams' group and Joe Biden's group is not the same group. They, they don't mingle, but some kind of way they got to work together. So I think it should be both things, some kind of way. Will, what's your take on that question? I, I agree. <clears throat> I respect um, people who are uh, stand by what they believe in and, and even take it to a level where it can be counterproductive in terms of political results. I do, I do respect that, and it's a sign of integrity in my view. Um, but from a pragmatic perspective and a perspective of getting things done, I think Jamar is right. Having that coalition is really important. You're basically left with alternatives. One alternative is to lose mm-hmm. and have the Republicans 
in power, which right now has unbelievably dramatic negative consequences. Or your other alternative is try to build a coalition and as uncomfortable as that can be, uh, to me at least, it's clearly the better alternative. If 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 y'all had a chance, and I just, I sigh uh, <laughs> because, you know, I, I've, I've had to be in the public arena and, and so, and I, I kind of understand about results as opposed to rhetoric, right? Mm. But I'm, I'm wondering, do, do we as, and I'm speaking about African-American voters, do African-American voters tend to have unrealistic expectations in your opinion, or do you think it's a fair assessment considering the history of African-Americans and voting in this country that they should demand leadership that's more result oriented and more accountable? And I'll start with Will first on that one. In, in my personal view, I think that they have every right to demand that. And, and to go um, as far as they want to with that. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, but I have enormous respect and deference for people that say, as you said, Eric, in light of this history, we have a right to making these demands. I couldn't respect that more. Jamar, your take. This, this is also a very, very tough question and, and more of a, a book than a you know, Quickly, I think there's almost three different categories of us African Americans on this issue. Kind of, you know, there's the none of them care about us. They're not going to do anything for us, uh, and they just, you know, maybe they don't even vote that group. Uh, and then there's another group that says, uh, you know, we can only change the system from within the system, uh, and and they're kind of the more going along and, and trying to work with people to get to that next level and make that difference. And then there's another group that's probably the more radical group that's like yeah, we're going to burn the system down. Uh, so I, I don't know how to answer that because I think we have those three groups in competition. And, and like we said earlier, those three groups don't ever sit to a table and work this out. We don't really have a large African-American coalition that can go, hey, uh, so what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about Biden? What are we going to do about the voting rights? How are we going to actually change things? As I said earlier, I think that one group is not coming to the table. And then there's one group that's want, that wants to burn the table down, <laughs> so we can't even we can't we don't even have a table to come to. So I don't I don't know I don't know what we do with this at all. That's a really tough question for me. And it, and it's in you know it's something that's been going on in in our political diaspora here in the United States for at least sixty years. I mean, there's there's those factions that you highlighted have always been out there. So, um, you know, I I. I don't know. I being somebody that has been political, I tend to believe that there's still some credibility to process. But I've also had experience in being in grassroots organizations and I feel the pain and the angst. And so I just think it's always kind of interesting to answer that question or ask that question. My thing is and I'll start with you Jamar, do you think Biden is capable of 
not only listening, but tapping into something that can build that coalition? Now, that's a good question. Uh, my answer is probably an easy no. Uh, I don't think he, uh, at this point in his career, and, and definitely not in the past, really, you know, we'd have to go, I, I don't know, in no way. Actually, I'm trying to make it happen. There's no way. I, I don't think he can. I don't know who his, who he actually listens to. I mean, I, I know cabinet and et cetera, but uh, who has his ear, who's really helping him with these decisions, with things that are a little more modern, a little uh, more based around a younger generation. And I don't even mean 20s. I mean 40s and 50s. Uh, I don't think he is at a point right now where he can understand where we are today to actually be in a, in a position to make the right or best decisions going forward. Uh, the best thing he could probably do, unless I missed it, this has happened, uh, but I'm sure it hasn't happened in this year, is uh, create or appoint a commission or coalition or somebody to have someone help him find the people to make these decisions. Somebody like a Stacey Abrams. Um, I think that's the best he could do. Uh, yeah. Well, what's your take on that? I agree. I agree. I think both of you set out um, really really well sort of a framework and how Jamar talked about three different groups and and what a challenge it is to try to get them at the table. You can't even keep the table from getting burned down, right? <laughs> as you said. So so it's a really tall task, right? And as are many other tasks in, in terms of building coalitions and things like that. And I do not think Biden is up to the challenge. Um, I just don't. And I, I, I think appointing somebody else that has a lot of gravitas and, and real understanding and energy is a good idea. I do not think he's going to do it, which is too bad because he's got the ultimate pulpit. He just doesn't have it, have what it takes to do that particular exercise. It takes just well above, above his pay grade. All right. So we're going to, we're going to close out with this question and I, it, it's going to be a long one but not too long because I only got about five minutes, but two, two significant things happened um, to African-American, two, two particular African-American individuals. And one was most recent, the uh, no knock warrant shooting that happened in Minneapolis. Uh, where the young man was asleep on the couch and and he was, I guess he was keeping a gun for safety by him and officers responded with gunfire and killed him. And then there's a situation with the young lady, um, Chelsea Chris, I believe her name is, who was a former uh, beauty queen, uh, a lawyer who had done a lot of pro bono work and all that. Um, and she committed suicide. And her mom revealed that she had been dealing with depression. So the backdrop leads to this question. As we go through the middle of uh, the rest of this year with Biden, which one of those two issues do you think he will address and be effective in addressing? Mental health reform or police reform? And I'll start with Will first. Ooh, that's quite a question, a very important one, and and quite a question. Um, if I had to predict which one he'd be most effective with, I'd probably take the latter. 
mental health reform for a couple of reasons. Um, one, his family has a history of challenges in that area. His son has drug abuse and associated depression. Uh, he himself has a personal history of lots of tragedy um, that he's had to work through. And so I think there's more authenticity and sort of an organic ability to connect with people in that way. On the first category, I think we, we run into, start to run into some of the same challenges we talked about with your last question, Eric, about is he the right person to speak on, on that issue? Is he the right person to be able to connect with the various constituencies who look at it from different angles? And I don't think that's the strong suit. So if I had to choose between the two, I would take the mental health angle. It's a great question. Yamar, what's your take? That's another really tough one. And I, I don't know that I have a, a clear answer, but uh, so my easy answer is that he'll have to take on the sort of, uh, I guess, maybe couched as police reform issue. Uh, only because uh, he's at least spoken to that already, but also it's been such a hot topic. Between the two things, it's the one that could literally rip the country apart or burn down the country in a very uh, tangible way, visible way. It's made news worldwide for the last, you know, what, three years or three summers, all the protests. So he might be forced to address that. Uh, not that he would be the best at it. As a matter of fact, he might not be good at all, but he might be thrown into that arena and have to address it. Uh, the mental health thing right now, or not right right now, but in, in modern current times, last 10 years, has been such a uh, more out front public issue on social media, et cetera, that it might be easier. It, for a lot of people, it, it's, a, it's a little bit more warm and fuzzy and uh, all encompassing and it touches all of us. And we don't all agree, that's for sure. But there's probably more agreement on how we handle mental health than how we handle police reform. So that might be easier for him to tackle. But related to your example, it becomes harder once we get to mental health within the black community. And then that is something that is almost off limits for Joe Biden. So all that said, if we were looking at it through this African-American or black lens, then uh, I think he'd be forced to do police reform. Uh, but if we go global with it, and just like he kind of hasn't really mentioned abortion by name, if he doesn't say Black or African-American, then maybe he can tackle mental health. Well, Jamar will. We, we're up against it. But I think this was a great, great discussion. And I appreciate you all uh, taking the time to do it. And I really appreciate um the insight that you brought into it. So again, Jamar, Will, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right. And so we're back. And, uh, I hope that lived up to what I was uh, kind of talking about at the beginning. I, I appreciate Jamar, Darren, and uh, Duran, I'm sorry, Jamar Duran and, and William Cooper for taking the time out to do that panel on, on the Biden administration. And we were able to get a lot discussed, as you could hear. Um, 
But I want to touch on uh, a couple of the things that uh, we addressed and and have my take on them, if you will. And um, and I'll start with the appointment of the next Supreme Court justice. I think it's absolutely amazing that we live in a society that just really, to me, doesn't give a damn about his history or even historical rhetoric, right? And that we feel that politically we have to say certain things, doesn't matter if you're on the left or on the right, to get our base so fired up and in the issue of Supreme Court justice, really not a much we not a whole lot we can do, right? I mean, we can as citizens reach out to senators and ask them to vote yay or nay on a on confirmations and all that. And you know, we've taken positions. I, I've had the privilege of taking a position about judges being appointed, right? Um and to some people, it was a very popular position. To other people, it was not, especially to the person who wanted the position um, or was being appointed. But outside of that, it's really kind of um, in the in the individual hands of the senators to make that call. And if you notice in the interview, I in the panel, I I kind of used the word optimism in a sense. And I really do feel that there's going to be at least 10 Republican senators that's going to vote to confirm the next Supreme Court justice, especially if it's an African-American woman. Um, and I think that Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema are going to vote for an African-American woman that to the Supreme Court. And based on the group that has been presented, uh, these are some of the most, some of these women are have been in the public eye for a long time. Some didn't know they were lawyers or if they paid attention, you know, they've been on the media a lot. So you know, more of an activist or, you know, legal expert as opposed to imagining them sitting on the bench, right? But these are all lawyers. And one name stands out is Michelle Childs. And the reason why is because she was the woman that James Claiborne had in mind, the senior congressman from South Carolina, who based his endorsement of Biden, of Biden based on that commitment to have an African-American woman on the Supreme Court. And she was the one that he had in mind because she's a judge from South Carolina. So it's almost kind of like it's almost kind of like this NFL coaches thing without you know, the it's not a reverse situation, 
But it's like you got all these names out here, but the one I'm watching is Michelle Childs because I think she is the impetus for how we got to this point. Now, having said that, the other 12 women that have been nominated, well, that are being vetted and that's been put out there that are being vetted, uh, are more than capable of, of doing it. But here's the other caveat that people need to understand is that the, to be a member of the United States Supreme Court, you don't even have to be a lawyer. As long as you are a citizen of the United States, you are a registered voter even, and a citizen of the United States, you are over the age of 30, you can be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. Now, I'm trying to remember who the last one was that wasn't a lawyer. I want to say it's Earl Warren, but somebody else is in the mix maybe that I'm, I'm missing. And we saw what kind of Justice Earl Warren turned out to be, ended up being the Chief Justice, and a lot of the landmark cases that impacted African Americans in a positive sense came through his court. But he was not a lawyer. So it's it's going to be interesting to see, and so how that all shapes out. But to get back to the point about historical rhetoric, I think it's an ultimate disservice to the people that you supposedly represent and the people that you obviously don't care to represent to automatically characterize a black woman being on Supreme Court as an affirmative action baby or not being able to differentiate a J. Crew catalog from case law, right? I think that's absolutely insane in the 21st century to even espouse that kind of rhetoric. And especially if you're a white man, and especially if you're a white man from the South, I just think that's absolutely ludicrous for you to even engage in that kind of thing. Now, uh, you know, if you were talking about Gosar or Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or some of these other people who are not balanced, right, who don't have a filter, a Matt Getz or a Madison Cawthorn, right, a Lauren Boebert, if you, if you were one of those five people, okay, or I'll throw in Gomer, that's six. It's one of those six people that just blurts out stuff, you know, and have no filter or no kind of connection as to what they're saying may not be actually what they're meaning. Or if it is what they're meaning, why are you saying it out loud, right? But for guys like Mitch McConnell and and Roger Wicker and John Kennedy to say those kind of things about a woman you don't even know, right? You literally don't know because you have these names and you have this concept, but you don't know the individual, right? And I guarantee you, I promise you that out of those names that have been thrown out there, they're all considerably more qualified to be jurists than Brett Kavanaugh. 
And if that offends Brett Kavanaugh or his friends, so be it. Because <laughs> it's the truth. And for these white men from the South to say that about a black woman, they don't even know because no name has officially been presented. Right. No senator from that state has come to them and say, hey, I need you to support my constituent. Nobody has done that. And for them to just make this blanket statement, basically saying that a black woman is not qualified to serve on the Supreme because that's what you're saying. When you say affirmative action, baby, when you say can't differentiate between books. When you say things like that, you are saying that these people are not qualified and to say that is insulting, not just to black people, but to women in general, right? And your own Republican Party has deliberately, Donald Trump did it, Ronald Reagan did it, deliberately said, we want a woman on the Supreme Court. Ronald Reagan was the first president to put a woman on the Supreme Court, a Republican. And he said he was going to do it, and he did it. And Donald Trump, after he got he had gotten two white men, he made a vow that the next one would be a woman, and that's what he did. And you guys who are saying that these black women who you don't even know are not qualified, you voted for these women. At least McConnell voted for both of them. I think he was around back then. He may not have been. But y'all voted for the last woman to get in there. So I think it's time to tone that down. And I think that the pushback by the Democrats has really not been that strong. Um, I think Cory Booker took his stand, which he's supposed to, I guess. He's kind of obligated. But I think Tim Scott should have said something too. And I know that's asking for a lot. But I think Senator Scott, as a black man, who has shown at times that he is more concerned about black people than being a, a good Republican, uh, he should have kind of, like he did with the flag issue, right? How he schooled Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham and and basically took the lead on the flag issue, gave them the guidance to get South Carolina to the point where the Confederate flag was removed from the state grounds altogether in light of the, the tragedy at Emanuel Church. He should have kind of said, hey guys, that's not the rhetoric we need to be saying. If we're serious about winning the midterm elections, we're going to have to get more than 10% of black votes, even in districts that are relatively safe. Because if the black community makes a massive, massive turnout, again, like they did in 2020, races that we think we're going to win may not happen. They were kind of tuned out in 2021, but 2022, stuff is starting to happen again, right? And you need to be sensitive to that. I think Tim Scott has the cachet, being the lone black Republican senator, to talk to his colleagues about tone and rhetoric. I think he has that cachet to do that. And maybe he has, and maybe they just said, screw it. We got to attract our base. I don't know. But I think it's, it's a terrible thing. And if it 
goes further than the rhetoric that we've initially heard, if it shows up in the confirmation hearings, if it shows up in the vote, right? I mean, strategically, I would tell every Republican senator to vote for not unless something really, really bizarre, crazy criminal comes up, which I don't think any of these women are going to fall in that category, whoever is chosen. It would probably be smart to vote 100% for them. Definitely enough to make sure that Kamala Harris is not the deciding vote. Because that will be a galvanizing point. And as narrow the margins are, if the Republicans are smart, they wouldn't want to do that, right? I think they want to play on what the polls are showing. And that's the reason why I had these gentlemen come on to talk about what their sense is about Biden and why is he at these favorables, low favorables for somebody who most people will assess, not just the United States, but across the globe. It's a better alternative than what we currently had, right? So there's that. Then the the other thing, right, that is disturbing me is this um, situation in Minneapolis, a city that uh, has literally been in the firestorm um, for the last couple of years, um, dealing with police actions. And I guess I'm 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 just kind of wondering why wasn't in in the midst of dealing with these reforms since George Floyd and knowing that there is a sentiment in the city of Minneapolis, I'd say the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, there's a sentiment of totally defunding the police, which the mayor and the city council as a whole are against. There are some individuals who believe in it, but as a whole, the city government is behind supporting and adequately funding the police to do their job. But in light of that, it seemed to me that one of the things that they would have stopped doing in Minneapolis, especially with Breonna Taylor happening in that same time frame in Louisville and the transition and the trauma that they're going through there, that they would have eliminated no-knock warrants, that they would have knocked that out of the park already. They wouldn't be doing that anymore. And yet here we are, and a young man named Amir Locke is dead because of a no-knock warrant. Now, knowledge, experience, training, you go into a situation, you see somebody with a weapon, you have options of what level of force all the way up to a firearm, 
in order to get that person uh, to stop that person from causing harm to you. Having said that, if you have not identified a person, right? I think you, I think you put yourself in a situation where you just know you're looking for a black person and the first black person you see with a gun, you shoot. And that's, that's an incredibly terrible mentality to have, but people for years have been trained that way and not just police officers. Right. And so, you know, it's like, now we have to piece the story together. Well, why does young brother have a gun? He's, he's scared of somebody breaking in. He's sleeping on the couch. He's scared of somebody breaking in. He had it for his personal protection, which is legal from what I understand in Minnesota, but none of this would have happened with a regular warrant because a regular warrant, you would sit there and wait for somebody to answer the door and proceed to go forward there. Once that person answered the door, if Mr. Locke was the closest person to the door, he would have answered the door and he probably would have complied with whatever orders the police gave him without the gun, right? Because he was also in Minnesota where a man said, I have a gun permit and I do have a gun and he got shot anyway. Same place. That officer got off, by the way, before you've forgotten. Philando Castile was the young man that was killed. So we got to stop these no-knock warrants. And I understand, you know, people are going to complain, especially in the law enforcement community, about tools being restricted and all that stuff. Stop and frisk was a tool. And it needed to be stopped. Because, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'd be comfortable just walking up to any black person and say, hey, you know, let me see your ID. You know what I'm saying? Without real probable cause. I just, I don't know. And it, and these no-knock warrants, this is not the first time. Most of the, let me, let me just tell y'all something. Most of the time, these no-knock warrants happen. Officers go to the wrong address. They get the wrong person. The majority of these mistakes don't turn out to be fatal. But these mistakes happen more than should be acceptable. And I don't know if it's about stress or follow through or whatever, but they happen too often. Enough where you have to sit there and say, this is not the way to go, right? Because a no-knock warrant also elevates the level of danger. I mean, we, we've seen police officers from from small towns all the way up to the FBI get killed on regular warrants. Person shooting through the door and all that kind of stuff. 
So it's already inherently dangerous, but then you create a situation that becomes more dangerous by storming into a place. And you know, it, 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 it looks good on movies. It, lo- it looks good on TV, but it doesn't look good in reality. And my personal opinion is that that tactic needs to stop. It just needs to stop. Um, when you when you are hell bent on a particular play in football, and you see that in this particular game, or even this particular season, that play is not working, you throw it out of the playbook, and you and you do stuff that will help you get to where you want to be. And that's what we need to do with no knocks, just like we did with stopping fresh, just like we did with illegal chokeholds. Law enforcement has to make adjustment over time. It's historically been that case, whether it's increasing firepower or decreasing or eliminating tactics. Law enforcement evolves and it and it hasn't ended the profession as everybody says whenever you make a change. Oh, we're not going to be able to do our jobs. You've been doing your jobs in the United States for a long time, over 100 years. And the better you get at it, the more civil a society you can create. But if you just want to keep things the way that they always are and use oppressive tactics that were used on you, you know, you're black now, you're in charge, so you want to use the same tactics that the white folks used on you, stop. Especially in Minneapolis. If I can't convince no other police department in the United States, Minneapolis Police Department, stop, 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 stop. You cannot afford any more hits to regain the credibility and trust of those citizens. You can't. Getting rid of the police chief's not going to do anything because that police chief's interim anyway. It's You've got to change your, your standard operating procedures. you got to do it. And really that goes for everybody, but that, that's got to stop. And so finally, I touched on the, the suicide with um, Chesley Chris. And I hope I'm saying her name right. But the young lady who committed suicide, plunging to her death. You know, as an African-American male and somebody who was seeing somebody who everybody described, it didn't matter whether it was big brothers or dress for success or whatever. Even her mom, everybody said that she, when she walked in the room, she lit up the room. She's literally the oldest woman ever to win a beauty pageant in the United States of America. That's how awesome this woman was, right? She was the accomplished lawyer. She was handling cases. And she entered a beauty pageant at one and then got a job in the media. And she was sitting on these boards that were helping people, helping children, helping women move forward in their lives. 
But I'm going to tell you this as somebody that's been through it. Depression is real. It is a powerful force. If you're into religion, if you're into faith, it's a, it is a supernatural force that we can manage, but it's, it's real or it borders on supernatural to me because having been through it and seeing the change that I went through, it was like Chinese water torture, right? Or slow erosion. It's just, you don't really notice it. It's almost like what the, the whole thing about sticking a frog, right? If you throw a frog in hot water right away, the frog's going to react to it. But if you put the frog in cold water and gradually turn the temperature up, that frog is not going to respond that same way. And it's going to be detrimental to that frog. Well, that, or any amphibian. And that's what depression is. Depression can creep up on you in such a way that everybody else that really knows you can see it, but you can't and you will deny it and you will fight any suggestions that something's wrong with you. And before you know it, something bad happens. Fortunately for me, it was not suicide. Although I would be lying to you if the thought never went through my head, right? It wasn't as innocuous as uh, George Bailey's character in A Wonderful Life. And, you know, some mysterious ghost pops up and takes me on a journey of what life really would be like without me. I, I, none of us have that privilege. But we do know that even though I've never met that woman I didn't really know a lot about her other than I remember she was one of the four black women that won beauty pageants in that one year, right? 2019, you know, but based on what everybody's saying, we lost somebody incredible because of depression, which is why I think that we have to be on a real crusade in public policy to get government back into doing mental health and then on the flip side doing it the right way because you know government was basically warehousing people with the minimum amount of training and or expertise in dealing with mental health it was almost kind of like a disposal thing in mississippi you could get like 75 dollars in a sack of flour for a human being that you committed right back in the day and so mental health studies, psychology, you know, therapy, all that stuff has evolved to the point now where we can deal with a lot of these things. And in conjunction with medical doctors, we can handle a lot of these mental health challenges. But we got to put a priority on it. I can guarantee you from the time that I served in the legislature, we cut mental health literally every year. And those of us that picked up the pattern challenged it, but the trend was oh, when the final budget was always accomplished, mental health was cut. To the point now 
where we see the results of that. We're seeing suicides. We're seeing homelessness. We're seeing people that don't have any ways to cope. And it's become overwhelming. But if we make a commitment to it, and it's got to be a federal commitment to start it and work our way down, we can minimize these stories. And it's not just the young sisters like Ms. Christ. It's white males like Mr. Parker. And I forget his first name. I want to say Jeff, who was the head of the public transportation system in Atlanta and jumped in front of a train at 55. We got to do something, y'all. We got to fix these problems and we got to, and we got to do it intelligently. And I'll touch on some of these issues in more depth later on. But now I just, uh, until next time.